this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. Takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever wondered what's inside the mind of a billion-dollar acquirer, one of those huge companies that you hope one day will take an interest in your company? Well, my next guest gives you a real glimpse into what that life is really like. His name is Rocky Romanella, and he was the president of a couple of divisions at UPS before he went on to run as the CEO, a company called Unitech. Now, Rocky's an interesting guy because he spent a lot of his career at UPS acquiring companies, 20 of them in total, uh, most recently mailboxes, et cetera, which you'd, you'd be aware of. He went on to run Unitech, which in his own admission was a collection of different acquisitions, which he had to lace together into a company that he ultimately went on to sell. So think of this episode as kind of a two-for-one deal. On one hand, you're going to hear about Unitech and the, the exit that Rocky put together for that business. On the other hand, admittedly, probably my favorite part of the interview was actually just getting inside the head of Rocky's mind as an acquirer in his role as the president of a couple of divisions at UPS. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Rocky Romanella. Rocky Romanella, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, well, thanks, John, for having me. I look forward to speaking with you and your audience. Yeah, so listen, I've never told this to anyone, and I have not told this to you, but my last company was um, working with very large enterprise organizations and helping them to understand the SMB market, small, medium-sized business market. And so our clients were people like AT&T and Google and J.P. Morgan Chase, and we got into the, the courier space. Uh, so we started selling to FedEx. FedEx became a client of ours. Then DHL became a client of ours. And UPS was sort of the gold standard, right, of marketing to SMB. You guys own mailboxes, et cetera. And you guys, and I remember going through, you know, Googling and searching and finding who runs the SMB segment at, at UPS because I got to get these guys as a client. And then I stumble across this crazy name, Rocky Romanella. <laughs> and I'm like, who is this guy? And we worked months to try to get you as a customer. I think we finally got UPS as a customer down the street, but we never got to you personally. And so now we've actually spoken to the famous Rocky Romanella. <laughs> well, John, I got to tell you, I'm honored that we finally got a chance to, I, you know, it's, I got to tell you, before I retired from UPS, I, I felt like there was this void. I couldn't understand what the <laughs> void was. It was speaking to you. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, I love it. So I share that story because uh, because it's, I think, important for our listeners to know your background. So you worked at UPS in very senior jobs and I guess were recruited out of UPS uh, to run this company, Unitech. Is that, am I getting that story about right? 
Yes, yes. It's, uh, so I was uh, had a wonderful career at UPS. Uh, the one difference between my career at UPS and you know many of my partners at UPS is I had a chance to do a lot of the non-traditional things, and and I think you you alluded to it uh, in your opening. We we had a series of acquisitions uh, over twenty that, that we built UPS supply chain solutions with, and those were some very large acquisitions like Overnight and Fritz. Uh, Menlo Air Freight, and as well as some small brokerage firms and other, you know, warehouse distribution types of companies, and then we purchased this franchise or mailboxes, et cetera, and then we branded to the UPS store. So that really gave me some opportunity to understand the integration of companies. And to your point, you know, how were those companies as they were coming on board? You know, I think if I had the opportunity to have the value builder, I would have probably had a better sense of you know, where they are and, and, you know, and how good they are in, in, in these different components that you talk so well about. And then I was recruited to uh, over to Unitech. And Unitech was a series of uh, acquisitions uh, that, the, that the board felt needed to really build a culture and a brand and some, I, I guess, orga- organic sales. Their sales had really come from acquisitions. And you know, they were past the point where they could really fund any more acquisitions. And so they really wanted to build a company culture, put these acquisitions together, build a brand and move the company forward. And so that's how I uh, was recruited and, and contacted for the Unitech opportunity. OK, and I want to get to Unitech in a moment. But before that, it would it would be terrible to let this opportunity go to waste. You were on the other side. So all of our episodes and what we t- typically do is talk to entrepreneurs about how, what it's like to try to sell your company to a company like UPS. You've been on the other side of buying companies. What's the biggest mistake you see entrepreneurs make in those integration years, post-sale, when they're doing their earnout, when they're when they're trying to get that second tranche of, of, of value, uh, when they're working for the UPSs of the world, what what's the biggest mistake you see them making in that transition period? I think what happens is they. I, I really do believe both sides make this mistake, in my opinion, is that it's always about the numbers, right? So as the seller, you're excited about the numbers, and you have a multiple you're trying to achieve, and you've you've worked towards the multiple. And as a buyer, you know you you're trying to get the ROIC, and you're trying to understand, you know, am I going to hit my synergy savings, and is this going to be a successful acquisition. And so what happens is it's always about the numbers, but at the end of the day, it's not. In fact, it's always about the people and the customers. And so what happens is, is, is you start to bleed customers and people, right? And, and it's always your best people that leave, you know, when you're going through a, you know, a sale, if you're not careful, and it's always your best people that leave when you're the buyer and you're not paying attention to them. And so what happens then is you start to lose your best people, because uh, no disrespect for to other people, but your best people have a chance to go somewhere else, right? And so when you bought the company, there's great value in the people, the processes, and the customers. And then and the customers tend to leave as well if you're not careful, right? Because once that announcement's made or once the knowledge is made that there's a sale on either side, what happens then is if a customer is slightly dissatisfied, that's their excuse to leave, Right. Or they wonder, do I fit into this next culture? Uh, am I going to be valued? Am I the big fish in a little pond? And now am I the little fish in a big pond? You know, you think about it, you're acquired by a company like a UPS or you think about even as big as the AT&T acquisition of DirecTV was. I mean, but AT&T is the behemoth in the room. While DirecTV is a great company and a, it, it's still not the size of AT&T. So you always wonder what role I play. So I would say. 
everybody pays attention to the numbers and we understand why, John, but it really is about the people and the customers. And so if it's about the people, first of all, can you just define synergy savings for people who don't maybe know that term? So when you buy a company, so for example, uh, you may have two HR departments in your acquisition. And so now you look and you say, well, I really don't need to duplicate the director of HR in that company, the director of HR in my company, because one director of HR can do that. So unfortunately, someone probably won't have a seat at the table because you don't really need two directors of HR. And I just, I don't pick on HR because I think HR is important. Those kinds of things, like in our acquisition of, uh, you know, Menlo Air Freight, uh, when we we brought it into UPS, I mean, one of the synergy savings is, is you look at the capacity of your airplanes and you say, well, if I'm under capacity in this lane, it's a natural that when I purchase, you know, this air freight company, that air freight is going to fly on that plane. It's virtually free. It's nothing's free, but you're not putting up an airplane. You're going to use the same fuel and you're going to fly that same route. It's just a function of, well, now instead of having eight cans on the plane, I'm going to have 10 containers on the plane. Well, you really, that's the synergy savings that you have an asset. It's just asset utilization at that point. Got it. And and let me talk directly to my listeners now. The more you as a seller can identify those synergy savings um, and, and really present and merchandise those to the buyer, the more strategic the acquisition is going to be. So it, it really help, it's going to help you as you start to have these conversations with potential buyers to try to understand their business, their model. And so you can identify those synergy savings up front and actually uh, kind of show them. They'll be doing their own work to try to identify them. But, but if you can be so proactive in that area, uh, that would be great. Did anybody do a really good job uh, doing that? Uh, for you, Rocky, when you were in the buyer's seat at UPS, did anybody do a great job of, of demonstrating to you what the synergy savings could be by buying their company? You know, it, it, I don't really believe they did a great job because I think what happens is, is that they understand, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way or in a value, you know, kind of in a critical evaluation way. I think what ends up happening is, is that you, you I, and I think you do a very nice job of when you, you know, kind of go through your value, you know, the, the engagement and going through the, the steps. It's you, you, you really get caught up in, in yourself, right? You get kind of caught, not you as a person, as the company, right? And you're always trying to project. You, you spend so much time on the obvious, right? But, but, but the intangibles are what really make the deal. The intangibles are, for example, you know, the IT person comes in and he evaluates your IT system versus their IT system and what can be, you know, how are they going to talk together and what are going to be the synergy savings there. But one of the things that I think that nobody talks about is are, are all the people in the organization from top to bottom, are they proficient in those systems? And if the answers are not proficient in those systems, well, then you're spending a lot of money then trying to educate everyone in the organization. So you may have gotten the best WMS, you know, uh, you know, warehouse management system just put in. You might have bought the top of the line management system. We're buying this warehouse company. But but no one's really trained all the people yet. So we're excited. The, the, the acquisition is in the price is going to already have a WMS system. That's all wonderful. But the training, the execution part is the hard part. So. I think that's what gets missed a lot of times is when you're when you're acquiring a company, you really have to start to play out, well, day one, how is this going to work and how is it going to run? And you talk about it a lot is what's the processes that are in place? You know, and, and are those processes going to work, the, you know, day one, day two, day three, or am I down the road from, you know, really being able to to realize what I'm getting from that acquisition? So I think that 
that's why I'm a little hesitant to say someone was better than another because no one really talks about those intangibles. They always talk about the obvious stuff, right? You know, it's like when you walk in my house and I'm selling it and I tell you, look at my brand new bathroom. That's great, but no one knows how to use it. They're also going outside and into the outhouse. Okay, well, I got to teach them then. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, that's great. I got a new bathroom, but no one's using it, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. So at UPS, how big a company were you guys? I mean, you're multiple billion. What was your top line revenue at UPS as a company? Uh, I think, well, you know, I'm out, I'm out a few years. I would say we're probably in the 40 billions in those days, 40 to 50 billion. 40 billion. And then the division you ran, what would that? So when I, when I was leaving, when I was out of supply chain at the time, we were probably four to six in that range. Four to six billion. Yeah. Got it. And so what, how, how small would an acquisition have to be to be too small for you? Well, it just depends on what you're doing it for. I mean, I think the problem is when you start to get to be a hundred thousand. I mean, at UPS for me is is a general conversation. I, I, I no, no. I mean, at UPS and in, in, in when you were in the catbird seat at, at UPS, like what would have been so, too small to bother with? Well, I think a couple things. The first couple questions before you even got there were, you know, why would you buy? Can, can you build? Do you have the in-house expertise? And it usually comes down to a couple things: speed. You know, that acquisition gets you speed that you can't get to if you build it yourself. There's some knowledge base that you may not have at this particular moment, and it takes you too long to get there. And then it could be um, could be finally a customer base that, you know, for example, in the world of freight, we weren't, re, you know, we didn't have, you know, sort of the reputation of freight that we did in small package. And so buying an LTL business, you know, got you speed, got you some great people and some great expertise and got you a customer base that you you may not have had when it was just pure freight kind of idea. So that that would be the three. And then I would think the size, you know, I, I'm trying to think of some of the smaller ones. I mean, there were some small ones, three, four million dollars. I mean, I mean, the problem is when you're when you get to be that large, you know, you know, three, four, you know, I hate to say it this way, but you know, a couple a couple, you know, a couple hundred million dollar acquisitions, not even rounding errors on fifty billion. You know what I mean? So, so that's the that's the the tough side on on a really big side of the acquisition. And that's why I think, you know, but if but those three criteria I think are important always to keep in mind, no matter what size it is, speed, you know, there's an expertise that you need that you don't have in house, and it's going to take you time to get there. So then you're back to speed again, right? And then of course, it, it, there's a customer base that exists. You're buying a customer base versus starting that customer base. You know, acquisition cost for customers always you know, more expensive than if you have the customer and you're now into the penetration side of that customer versus the acquisition of the customer. Great stuff. And again, I didn't mean to monopolize all our conversation, but while I have you, I wanted to get inside the head of an acquirer and just, you know, think through some of the issues that, that you were thinking through on the other side of the table. So let's go to uh, Unitech. You get uh, recruited into uh, the CEO. This is a public company. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Unitech. People may not know the name, so maybe you can describe what the company did. Yeah, so Unitech was a, a, an interesting company, about 3,000 employees, uh, somewhere about 450 million in revenue, give or take. And uh, we, we were a series of acquisitions that were put together, and we had uh, four sort of distinct divisions. And it was interesting how it started out as a cable comp company doing cable installations. And then uh, they moved into where they started to do more on the cable side, trenching and those kinds of things. And then uh, really became one of the three primary in installers for DirecTV. And so that became sort of the satellite cable side of the business. And then the other side of the business, uh, we started to do uh, 
actual cell tower bills and cell tower upgrades. And so when there was that big push to go from 3G to 4G, you, we were a turf vendor uh, for AT&T, but we also did work for the other uh, cellular providers as well. And then internally, one of the acquisitions was a company that actually did what they call distributed antenna systems. And those were, so think about being inside a building and you have a dead zone or being inside a stadium and you have that one spot there where you have no cell coverage or you have no Wi-Fi. And so you really you know, built a system inside there so that you could gain cell coverage and gain uh, Wi-Fi inside, inside the building. And it's called the Distributed Antenna System or DAS system. And so we did those in, in major buildings uh, in New York City and major cities and some, some uh, stadiums as well. And so that really became the core competencies of the – of the business, it was uh, the, the installation side on the Directv uh, cable side, and it was the uh, cell side, which was the uh, build and, uh, and and upgrade of um, of cell towers. What was the hardest thing about transitioning from a senior guy running a division in a forty billion dollar company to being the chief executive officer of a four hundred and fifty million dollar company? Ah, you're by yourself. You're lonely. I mean, it was the strangest thing. So think about this for a second. So here you are, you're in UPS. Now UPS, you know, 400,000 employees. So as big as UPS was, you kind of grew up inside UPS. And, you know, I moved uh, nine times with UPS across the country. You know, you were joking about Rocky Romanella. You know, one of my moves was Des Moines, Iowa. And one of the number one questions I would guess would get would get asked is are you in a witness protection program <laughs> so so even though you moved across the country john you still knew someone inside the organization whether they had gotten moved there or transferred or they heard your name or they knew you were coming or they saw your reputation whatever and you always had a friend or a partner or a peer or someone that you grew up with inside the organization been to workshops with to me, the, the, one of the more interesting, difficult things sitting in that role as CEO was you really did not – I knew no one inside that company the day I started. All right, so I had no previous relationships. Um, and of course, this, the board I knew you know, because they interviewed each board member to spoke with me and interviewed me. And then we went through a very, uh, you know, very good process. But you really know – you really – don't know anyone. So those days when you're sitting there and the confidants that you would have uh, inside of an organization that your peers with and grew up with just aren't there. So to me, that was one of the most difficult parts of it because, you know, wh when you take on a new role, whether it's internal to a company or, you know, as the new CEO or whatever your role is, I mean, everybody's gaming you a little bit. You know what I mean? Everybody's knocking on your door trying to tell you, hey, just before you left, they were going to promote this person for me. Or right before you left, I was getting this raise. You know, that kind of idea. <laughs> so it's almost like you know, everyone's got something that they need or want. And so it's, it's, it's how you manage through that early days. That's to me was a difficult, was, was not so much a difficulty. It was different. How's that? I mean, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So when you started at Unitech, was the intention to sell the company or was, was your mandate to, to integrate uh, all these acquisitions and, and grow it? What, at what point, I guess my question is, did, did, did the sale of the company start to percolate as a, as a priority? Well, I think when I was hired, the, the goal was to to grow it, uh, hopefully someday grow it to a you know, substantial size company. But, but really, I was hired for the integration piece because if you think about my 
kind of passed at UPS, I mean, the board looked at me and said, well, look, you integrated, you know, over 20 companies and built, you know, a world-class supply chain solution business with, with different size companies, with different cultures, and it kind of all helped put that together. And it really, you know, became a, a world-class organization inside a world-class organization. And so, you know, they knew I had a, 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 a ability to do that. And so they looked at how each of the business units were being run and said, look, you know, individually, but now you put them together, they're not collectively gaining. And then the other mistake companies make sometimes, and I'm not suggesting that Unitech did or didn't, so please, this isn't a criticism, it's just an observation. And one, I think that you, you probably uh, see all the time, when you start to put together companies, so if you're a strategic buyer uh, and you're starting to put together different like companies to build this, you know, larger strategic company, what ends up happening is, is you end up putting a lot of overhead cost in without realizing it. So you end up with this shared service model. You know, everybody talks about, oh, you gain all this synergy, you gain all the savings with shared service. Well, the problem is if you have a shared service model, for example, and you build a corporate HR department, but every business unit want, has their own little kind of, feast, you know, you know, has their own little kingdom there and their own little things that they want to get done and they want their own person, what ends up happening is you start doubling your overhead costs without realizing it, you know? So you have a shared service customer service group or a shared service sales group, but I want my own salesperson in this business unit because there's a uniqueness that I think they have to have. And so that was another problem that always happens is do you ever really get your, you know, the savings from a shared service? And if you're not, it's just expense. There's no revenue on the shared, on the shared services side. So that was... You know, so as they started to put together this company, you know, they weren't really achieving, they thought, the the savings they can get from a well-integrated, well-coordinated, you know, company by putting everything together. And the tough part is you got to start to tell people to, you know, break down their, you know, sort of their little fences that they've put up, you know, everybody has their sort of, you know, their little world over here. You don't understand. I used to always tell people, they think I'm bad in geography, right, all the time. They'll say, well, this is... You know, this is uh, King of Prussia. We don't do it that way here. Like, okay, so let's establish this is King of Prussia. I got it. <laughs> okay, you don't have to keep telling me where we're at. But they always would tell you, oh, you know, this is, you know, uh, you know, and, and you would say, this is Maspeth. You know, we don't do it that way here in Maspeth. Okay, we've established, I know where Maspeth, Queens is, or this is New York City. Got it, got it. Okay, I won't get lost again now, but that's not how we do business. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right? <laughs> So a lot of what you found at Unitech was that they were trying to build up the shared services model, yet everybody was kind of hanging on to their 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 kingdoms, and therefore the the synergies weren't happening. So what happens next? What what like how did how did how did the the rule progress over the next few uh, months and years? Well, what happened for us is uh, you know full disclosure. Uh, so what happened with us is so I you know kind of put together my hundred day plan and. You know, um, I guess maybe we'll talk about it at the end, but, you know, I, I talk about this in my book, not the book about Unitech or what happened, but in this kind of leadership book I put together. And one of the things that I, I always talk about is your 100-day plan. And so I put together when I, when I you know, got the role at, at Unitech and in all the previous roles I had, even at UPS, I put together my 100-day plan. And I always pay particular attention to the three key constituents, you know, your customers, your people, and your stakeholders, shareholders if you're a public company and stakeholders. So, you know, I made sure that in my 100 days, you you get the opportunity 
to get out there and touch all three constituents. And so, you know, I would look and say, well, okay, who are the top three customers in each of the business units, right? Because what happens is what you find out is, is in order to keep control, especially when you're the acquirer, in order to keep control, the the company that you acquired never really wants you to talk to their customers in the same way, right? Because that's their sort of uh, that's that's the little bit of authority they have over you. You know, well, we have a relationship with with this customer, and we have a relationship with this key customer, so you don't have to worry about it. I got that. Well, then that's what they believe is their authority over you, right? So, so one of the things I do is I always say, well, let's go talk to your top three customers. Let's go talk to a customer that left. Well, we don't need to talk to them. They were unhappy and we didn't really want them anyway as a customer, right? Well, when you go talk to the customer that left, you get some insight as to why they may have left and maybe what some of the problems were that weren't addressed before they left. So I always try to hit the top three customers and the one customer that, you know, or find out why, you know, what's your churn and why that customer left. And then on the people side, right, you know, let's go to our, maybe our largest facilities, but also let's go to a facility where we may have high injury and accident frequencies. Why do we have high injury and accident frequency? You know, why, and why do people, you know, when you walk around people, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? People talk to you when you, when you ask them questions. And then, on the, you know, then I, because we were a public company, I would talk to the top couple investors in a company, but also wanted to talk to people who were key stakeholders, you know, people who had either sold us a part of their business or, you know, people who, you know, had, had you know, vested interest in what we were doing, a couple board members after a few weeks. So that balanced approach allowed me then to get some really good insight in, into the company and then start to understand what are my next steps after my first hundred, hundred days. And then what I found is that, you know, the strength of the company were these individual business units, but the weakness of the company were these individual business units that really were reluctant to play in the sandbox with everybody. So how'd you get them to play together? Well, it's not easy. You have to, sometimes you take the toys away, you know, <laughs> it's not as uh, simple as it's, it sounds. And so, so one of the things I realized is that we, each business unit had their own value mission statement from the days when they were an independent company. And so one of the first things we did was put together a, a, a mission statement for the organization as a whole. And then what were our value statements as an organization as a whole, right? And although everybody said that they cared about safety, safety wasn't a core value in each of the business units. And so you had to make that the core value of the company and make that a core value. Integrity, you know, we're not going to, you know, do the obvious lie, steal or cheat. But the, at the end of the day, integrity is more than that. It's integrity of your word. You know, did you say you were going to follow up on something and did you? And if you didn't, that's integrity in my in my opinion. So so we established our, our values in our mission statement. And now as a unified organization and, you know, I, th I think if you, I know, you know, you, you, you use some sports analogies, I would say the same would happen. Think about a football team. You know, you've got the, the defensive coordinator and. You know, they've got who they are as the def defensive team and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and how excited they are. But they work within the confines of, you know, the team. And so the team has a value, you know, and, and what, what does this team stand for? And so I think that same thing happens inside organizations. It's good that you have your individual, you know, views of things and, you know, you're excited, but, you know, you're part of a larger organization. Nothing taught me that more, John, than at the UPS, UPS store acquisition because 
you know, UPS story, one of the unique things is that they're 100% franchisee owned. So now you have these franchisees, these entrepreneurs. You love the entrepreneurial spirit. They're great people. But you have to get them to be entrepreneurs within the confines of a franchise network. So, you know, while you've got some great ideas, you're not allowed to sell lottery tickets inside a UPS store because that's not one of our product sets. Now, you can explain to me why it's good. You can explain to me why it would drive more traffic. But at the end of the day, you're in a franchise network with a very specific set of products. So you have to so you have to maintain the entrepreneurial spirit within the confines of a large organization. That's what we were struggling with at UP at uh, Unitech. Hey, you know what? It's great that you have these business units, but now you're within the confines of the Unitech now. That's our family name. And so the mission statement, the value statement as a whole helped us bring that together. Got it. And so you've got how of the of the acquisitions that I mean, Unitech sounds like it was this collection of acquired companies. Uh, were you able to retain the entrepreneurs who who originally started those companies, or were they mostly sort of hired guns? No. What ends up happening is this is a uh, this is a general high level uh, editorial that may not necessarily represent the view of the station, right? Usually, those people. It's difficult to maintain or keep those, you know, the, the founders, right? Because at the end of the day, what happens is, is that, you know, they still always believe it's their company. And while they founded it and they should be very proud of it, they sold the company. And there's a reason why they sold the company. And so it, it, I, it's difficult for them to tend to stay on. So uh, we had one of the founders that stayed on with, and at the end of the day, got himself in some trouble. And that's a different story when you let me know when you want to talk about that at another time. But that was a, a difficulty. And in, even inside of UPS on our acquisitions, at the end of the day, there was always an exit strategy for either a founder or the person running that company. And even when I sold at Unitech, I mean, and sat with the, the private equity guys, uh, hey, look, you, you know, there was no sense doing that dance. I mean, look, you, you bought the company. It's like it's like bringing in uh, you know new owner of a sports team. You're, you're going to bring in your own coach. There's nothing wrong with that, and you have a right to do that. Uh, that's why I think you do such a, a, a great job when going through your process. That's why you have to build. You know, you used the example in there of the hub and spoke and how you know you, you had that conversation and that person was telling you how everybody comes to me and you know I'm the key player and if they have issues and problems and I, so I'm the hub and that hub and spoke well that's the biggest problem because you're probably not staying you know the, your world's going to be upside down you sold a company and so now is everybody below you capable of running that company because that's also an important part of the sale and acquisition. So, so what happened to the one guy who ran into trouble? Well, this is all it's all public knowledge, so I'm not getting me and you in any trouble. So, so now six months into this wonderful opportunity to integrate a company, we ended up with an unfortunate, you know, situation from an accounting point of view. So now we have to disclose a fraud situation inside of. Uh, inside our company when we're doing our closeout. And so now we have to close, uh, disclose to the Securities Exchange Commission. And so he, he, uh, he, he gets let go as well as the CFO, chief accounting officer, and some of the engineers who had this issue. And so- He was fudging the numbers. Yeah, well, you brought it up, you brought up the situation before, an earnout. So when a company really can't afford, this is all prior to me, but when a company really can't afford to pay for the acquisition, they tend to do earnouts then. 
okay, if you earn out, you'll, you know, you'll get the second half potentially of this or whatever. Well, he exceeded his earn out, but unfortunately exceeded it in the, in the wrong way. <laughs> so did you end up paying him out on that earn out and having to so somehow capture, capture that money back or well, we're, to get the money back? Well, they're in the process of doing that right now. So yes. Yeah, so yes, he, he exceeded the earn out when we did our year end closeout. So now think about this six months into the job, you know, the CFO comes in and says, Hey, we've got a problem. Of course, light bulbs go off in my head. This doesn't sound like a good problem. You know, you get the board involved, you get the audit committee involved and then the process takes from there. We have to disclose. And so then we spend the next year trying to, you know, cause then once you go backwards, you know, you end up with some issues with covenants, you end up with, you know, obviously then uh, you kind of get into this spiral of, you know, banks get nervous, your investors get nervous. And so, you know, holding the company together was difficult, but we, ref you know, we, you know, we restated our books, you know, kind of refinanced our debt and then kind of began that, you know, ushering, you know, getting the company back to a, to a good place. I chose to stay uh, only because, you know, in conversations with the different banks and entities or, or customers, they all said, well, look, you know, if you leave, there's really no adult supervision. And so, um, I chose to stay because I felt there was 3,000 individuals in our company did nothing wrong. And then uh, we said, you know, I said, look, you know, let's shepherd this to a better place. And so we rebuilt back the company. And then once we built back the company, we made a decision as a board. You know what? It's, you know, let's refinance the company. Let's go to a sale. And then I think, you know, it probably should be. It's small enough. It probably should be a private company. And then, uh, and that's how we entertained. That's the, that's what began the sale process. Once we were healthy enough to begin that process. So this, this kind of rogue entrepreneur within Unitech who, who was fudging the books, it sounds like triggered a domino effect, which, which ultimately led you to put the, put the company on the market. Yeah, I, I think ultimately the company probably uh, it probably should have never been public. This is that's just an editorial. So, but uh, I, I think it, I think you have to understand why you're public and why you're private and all those kinds of things. I think sometimes, you know, I think I think that's why I love what you're doing because I I think that when you take a step back and you're building a company as an entrepreneur. Yeah, everybody has these visions of grandeur, you know, okay, I'm going to be the next Zappos, you know, I'm going to start this company and then, you know, I'm going to build it. And next thing you know is, you know, Amazon's going to come in and, and buy me, give me this great multiple and I'm never going to worry about money again. It doesn't always work that way, right? You have to build your company for the right reasons with the right structural integrity and, and the right values in your company. And then at some point, it may be a good time to sell. There's no, there's no doubt about it. But it has to be uh, – it's not, it's not just a series of you know, acquisitions thrown together so that, hey, look, you know, we grew 40% you know, you know, for the last four years, year after year after year. We went from $100 million to $450 million, Therefore, I'm a great sale. It doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? It, I do. What's your general philosophy of using an earnout when you're in the acquirer's spot to bridge the gap between what you as an acquirer is willing to pay for a company and, and what the entrepreneur wants for the company? See, I'm not a, I'm not, this is just Rocky speaking. So please don't, this is not a criticism of anyone who thinks it's good or evaluation. I, I'm not a big fan of it because a couple things. 
you know, in that year or so or whatever time frame you put on the earnout, right? You know, the person then is working as hard as they can for the earnout. Well, if the reason you bought the company was because it's a piece, for example, of a, a larger puzzle that you're trying to put together, but I'm so focused on earning out that I'm not really playing well in the sandbox with anybody else because I don't really have time to work with your piece of the business or maybe support your piece of the business because I got to hit my earnout number. Right. If, if if the organization says, well, we kind of asked Rocky as the person earning out to maybe not focus as much on their business as they could have because we needed them over here. Then all of a sudden, yeah, we said this was the target, but maybe we need to lower the target. Look, if you think the company's worth buying and you can afford to buy it, buy it. It's no different than in your personal life. If you really can't afford the car, you can rationalize all the reasons why you, you, you deserve the car. You'd like the car. You'd look great in the car. If you can't afford the car, you probably shouldn't buy the car. And so in your mind, you, from an acquirer's point of view, you're going to pay what you can afford to pay. And if the entrepreneur is not willing to accept that, then you walk? Yeah. I mean, I think then you got to decide, can I build it myself? Is there something else I can do? You know, if you, I mean, you, you, I mean, you, you really have to be willing, because think about that for a second. I mean, you know, the integration by itself, John, in my opinion now, the integration by itself is going to be difficult. But now you have this person who is is earning out the remainder of their 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 pay or compensation for the you know acquisition of their company. I mean, their focus isn't your company anymore. They're never part of your company. I, it's hard to be. They're they're focused on their earnout, right? So to me, that's a little bit of a conflict. That's all. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So walk us through the actual sale of Unitech. Um, it sounds like you you refinanced the business and then you took it to market. I mean, did you did you? I'm assuming you hired an M and A firm. Yeah. To, to yeah. take it to market. Yeah, we had an excellent. Uh, I mean, we interviewed f four or five, and then uh, we used Stiefel Nichols. They were, they were excellent. They were, um, and and I had never done that side of it, right? So now I'm the CEO, having to you know you know put the famous book together and you know, make your presentation and, you know, send it out. We had some interesting, you know, buyers, both uh, strategic buyers and, you know, uh, investment kind of buyers and different things like that. And so, you know, yeah, it, it was a, it's a full process. You know, you may end up with 15 or 20 presentations. I mean, depending on the size of your company. Uh, but all the things that you talk about really come out loud and clear in that process. You know, do you, you know, what's your customer base, what's your churn, you know, do you have loyal customers? You know, you think they're going to stay? What's the go forward strategy in those customers? You know, have you saturated the market that you're in? Those kinds of things. And then there's the people side of it. You know, can the people run the business without you? You know, and you know, you know, you know now in a small acquisition, sometimes they'll they're buying the management team. Don't get me wrong. You know, uh, but in a large corporation, eventually what's happening is it's you know think about the AT and T Directv acquisition or any of the large ones that you see or think about, you know, today you have AOL and, you know, Huffington Post and Yahoo all going to be, I guess, under the AOL brand underneath Verizon. Well, you know, I think Tim Armstrong is what the CEO of AOL. I mean, I'm sure that when Huffington Post gets underneath there, you know, and then the Yahoo gets under there, you know, those two former CEOs aren't staying there. It's only it's going to be Tim who runs that. So so those natural things are going to happen in the very large in the smaller acquisitions, it's 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 possible that they're going to keep you because, especially not a strategic buyer, uh, an investor. Well, I'm you know I'm just an investor. I don't want to run the business. 
So I want you to stay. So in some cases, depending on who the buyer is, they're they're really evaluating you as the as the leaders running that business, and they're buying you as a t- leadership team. You, you mentioned one of your divisions at Unitech was installing was being like an installer for Direct TV. Yes, I'm I'm wondering what proportion of your revenue when you took the business to market originally uh, was coming from Direct TV. Well, I mean, yeah, this is all public. You could pull this stuff up. So I'm not giving you non-public information. So, uh, I would say probably, you know, between AT&T and DirecTV, you're probably 85, 90% of the of the business was just in those two large customers. So that's the other thing that's difficult too in a sale. You know, what's your revenue base? Do you have a, and that's part of when I, when I came on board, one of the reasons is, is how do we diversify our portfolio of customers, right? Because even on the cable side, I mean, if you think about it, you're really down to a handful of cable providers. You know, it's Time Warner Cable, it's Charter, it's, you know, Comcast. I mean, those are your large providers. I mean, and there's a consolidation going on in that area as well. I mean, probably 20 years ago, you had 15, 20 cell, cell providers. Now you're down to what, the big four? I mean, direct, I mean, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon. So it's not like, you know... Yeah, maybe U.S. cellular, small and Midwest or whatever. But at the end of the day, you're really down. So by design, there's consolidation out there in the marketplace anyway. And so your customers tend to be very concentrated if you're not a, you know, kind of a, a retail kind of, you know, business where, you know, your consumers are large enough. But if you think about when you're a provider and you're dealing with businesses, I mean, you could end up with a very concentrated group of businesses. And and I got to tell you, think about this for a second, John. Even large companies like a direct, like like a UPS and FedEx, I mean, the, the Amazons of the world are so large that they, as a individual customer, who'd ever thought on a company like UPS or that's doing you know fourteen, fifteen million packages a day, an Amazon because of their size now is material to them. Yeah, I would imagine. So ninety percent of of your revenue at Unitech was coming from. AT&T Direct uh, TV. Yeah, I mean, roughly. I mean, I... But, yeah, ballpark. It was yeah. a big chunk. Yeah, big yeah. chunk. Yes. Yeah. And how did that customer concentration play out in the sale of the company? Well, initially, it starts out really well because think about it. I mean, you have two world-class companies. You know they're not going out of business. We were great providers for them. So that was all good. Or unfortunate, there was a point... And, and I think everybody goes through this in a sale, I, I, I believe. And I'd be curious to see if you agree from your from your experience and expertise is, you know, these sale processes, whether it's your personal home or even on the business side, you know, you hit these moments where they could go either way, right? You know, you get all excited, you buy a house, you see the house, you love the house, and now the inspection happens. Well, now there's a point where it's either gonna go good or bad, right? <laughs> it's gonna be, and then you get through the inspection part, and then it's the mortgage part, and then at the end, it's the closing. And well, it's the same inside of business. And, and so you have these moments where you think everything's moving along well, you've, but then there's, some, there's an unintended consequence. And for us, if you think back now, AT&T makes the announcement they're gonna buy DirecTV. So now you so just now now you got one customer that's yes. 90% of your revenue. There you go. There you go. So that's a and, that's tough. I mean, there's not a lot of people that want to buy a company that has one customer, right? <laughs> yeah. So you, you met, so how did how did that affect your negotiations? How many when that happened, how many acquirers were still at the table? Can't really give you the, the facts on all that stuff because some of that's, you know, you know, confidential stuff. But at the end of the day, it really kind of limited, you know, what was a very enthusiastic process. It kind of limited the enthusiasm. So 
Yeah, yeah. So you were, you were, it, it, it really impacted it. I'll, I'll sort of fill in the blanks. Yeah. Um, and so you talk about, you know, you know, you know that whole when you talk about the revenue streams inside a company, and you know, you talk about, you know, the different. I think you, you use it the your Letterman top ten. You, I guess it's seven though for you, right? Um, so yeah, it forms of recurring. Revenue. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I agree, but caution on the top one, which is contracts. I mean. The downside of contracts, though, is that almost all of them, a customer can get out in 30 days. So the tough part here is that, you know, you have a great relationship with your customers, but they could, you know, they could they could send you a 30 day notice. And so that's the tough part. So when you look at us now, it's all our eggs in one basket with one customer who, if you know, they wake up one morning and they're shaving and decide, you know what, we're big enough, we're going to take this in house. Holy cow, there's that's all your revenue. So that's a difficulty, you know, on the contract side. I love your description of subscription base. I mean, subscription base to me is huge because, you know, think about Amazon Prime. I mean, whether you're using Amazon or not, you paid your Amazon Prime and you're getting the Amazon Prime, you know, or my wife's got, you know, one of the gym memberships that every month she's getting a ping on her phone that they just withdrew for her membership, but she hasn't been there. You know what I mean? So those subscription base are, are somewhat critical. And if you can have that subscription base revenue kind of cover your fixed expense, it's, pretty, it's a good good place to be. You bet. So in terms of this, the, the sale of Unitech, I mean, uh, what what can we talk about publicly? I mean, was there, uh, can we talk about what EBITDA multiple they, they paid, the, uh, the acquire paid? Well, no, what ended up happening was, you know, so we, we, we were in a unique situation. We had some losses. We had losses over the years. And so we were able to maintain that because the group stayed in. So the, so the debt holders ended up being, being the owners of the company and kind of it was a, was a sale back to them kind of idea. Uh, but uh, so not exactly a, a multiple, multiple in the sense of uh, the traditional, hey, four times or five times. EBITDA, it really came down to sort of this, you know, we, we kind of swapped, you know, debt for equity and they, they took over the ownership of the company. So while you count it as a sale, it's not, you know, once once the once the word got out that there really wasn't, you know, uh, a, a, the opportunity wasn't the same after the DirecTV AT&T merger, you know, talk out there. Got it. Got it. And so the debt holders said, well, let's yeah. just swap the debt for, right. for equity. Interesting. Well, because Interesting. because I think something that, you know, is so important in this and the thing I'm probably the proudest of is, is you know, Billy Joel. Well, I didn't start the fire. I, I hung in there to <laughs> put it out. And uh, but at the end of the day, you had really good people, really good processes and excellent performance. And so because of that, DirecTV and AT&T, today, as we speak, it's a private company doing very well. You know, I still, we still always say, and I used to always say, you know, my goal was to keep the parking lots full, right? Because these people did nothing wrong. And so I, because you were able to articulate the quality of the individuals and we kept those good people stayed on. So the key players at the business unit level who ran the company, you know, on the day-to-day -day level stayed we were able to really show great value. So you could, you know, uh, on a sale, I mean, I do believe if the, if that announcement hadn't been made, you know, probably would have been a really, really great sale to tell you the truth, but it is what it is. There's nothing you can do, the unintended consequences. And, you know, the AT&T, DirecTV acquisition has been great for DirecTV and AT&T. 
but for us, it was just unfortunate timing. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so talk about what you're doing. You've left Unitech and, uh, and you've written a book. Tell, tell us about that and where, where people can find out about the book and, and you personally. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, John, for asking. I appreciate that. So I wrote a book. It's called Titan the Lug Nuts. It's, uh, you can buy it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble online. And uh, there's, a neat, there's a Kindle version of it. And I've always felt that to me, you know, the measure of your success is in a title or a level. It's the, it's it's your legacy. Did you leave it a little better place than you found it? And so one of the things that I wanted to do was write a book that, you know, could leave my legacy. You know, and I had a great, you know, great mentor in my dad as a child growing up. And I felt like that uh, many of the core values I have today and many of, of the things I do as a leader and as a parent really came from my dad. And then my wife has just been a tremendous supporter, uh, partner, and, and we, we've, you know, this run I've had as a business person, I never would be here where I am today. Or, or I got to tell you, John, getting through the difficulties of what took place in those two years at Unitech, I'd never get through that without Debbie Romanella saying, hey, it's the right thing to do. We've got to do this, you know, and, uh, you know, we got to hang in there. Because let's face it, six months in when we found this issue, I could have easily said, hey, you know what? This isn't what I was hired for, and this is all prior to me coming on board. Hey, I'm out of here. But the feeling was, no, it's not the right thing to do for the people. But she needed to be there because you can imagine the long hours of negotiations, of you know, restructuring, refinancing, all those kind of things. So the, the, the object of the book was kind of a, in, a, in a way to say thanks to my dad and Debbie and to then highlight – things that took place throughout my career that either I was mentored or learned from other people or, you know, lessons that I were were able to impart on other people. And so I wrote the book as a legacy saying, hey, look, if there's an opportunity for you to, you know, help you, you know, in your daily life, both as a person and as a professional, then I hope this book can do that. I wrote it in a story form because I don't like to lecture or preach. I don't, I don't think people like, I never liked that feeling when someone was sitting across from me and they would present to me an idea and I'd say, well, I don't know if that's such a good idea or hey, I don't know if I do it that way. So I had this character I always used to use. His name was Joe Scaffone. I'd say, hey, would Joe do this? You think Joe would do this? Or what do you think Joe would think of this? And we all kind of joked and laughed about it. But it was a way to get people kind of to, you know, think outside the box a little bit, maybe not stop, not, maybe not stop at the first right answer. And if Joe could kind of get them to say, that's a good answer, but can you, maybe if you go a little deeper, if you kind of move past that first right answer, there may be even a better answer out there. And so I wrote the book, you know, the narrative of Joe Scaffone. So I think you'll, great stories, I think. I'd love to hear if anybody reads it, what they're, I always love when people will text me or email me. My favorite story was this. So I think that's the cool part of the book. Tighten the lug nut. Rocky Romanella, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, John. It's a pleasure talking to you and uh, be safe. And uh, if you need anything from me, don't ever hesitate to give me a call. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.